best of the deep southern states. Thoughts that are informative, candid, humorous, and sometimes controversial about life in one of the most interesting and rabble-rousing states in the nation. Here are your hosts, Anna Gray and Jim Brown. Hey, we're here talking about Dateline, Louisiana. Interesting things going on in Louisiana, or nationally, that affects us here in Louisiana. Our producer, Chris, is here, who just got engaged, so I hope he's focusing on the show today, And because we've got an interesting show that we're going to talk going to talk about diversity when it comes to higher education. Uh, Ronna, just to let you know, and Ronna Gray is my co-host with me, as she always is, the United States Supreme Court last week, about three weeks ago, heard arguments on whether or not a school could take racial preferences into the mix, have racial preferences involving African-Americans, Hispanics, and Indians, uh, and uh, Asian-Americans is what's happening. Asian-Americans who are... very bright people and and are testing very high, their numbers are reduced while minority uh, factors, minority groups are given preferences. And and so the Supreme Court uh, was looking at a case at the University of North Carolina, my alma mater, and Harvard University, Harvard being a private school, Chapel Hill, North Carolina being a public institution. And so is it fair to put racial preferences uh, in the application process of a school, uh, either private, whether either public or private, that basically that takes federal funds. Uh, That's the that's the clinker right there, accepting federal funds. If you're a private institution, Rana, and I mentioned Hillsdale College up in Indiana, Hillsdale doesn't take any uh, any federal funds at all. And so they f- say they can do anything they want. So far, the courts have backed that up. So uh, should you be allowed to have those racial preferences, which pretty much has been used by schools for the last probably 40 years, I guess, going back just after Brown versus Board of Education on the high school level, the preferences are brought in to, to allow more minorities to be brought in, saying that diversity is good for the school. Right. Right. And so uh, you went to LSU during the time you were there. Uh, the application process uh, gave preferences to bring more minorities into the whole process. So should you be allowed to do that? What do you think? Well, re- regarding LSU, my hurdle was being out of state. At the time, they were limiting out of state, and they were charging a lot more out-of-state fees to come in for out-of-state. But this is a tough one for me because uh, they call it race-conscious admissions programs, and we have so much now, mixed race and um, so many other underrepresented minorities, which this is aimed at, at uh, protecting and getting more into the, the classes. We have so many more coming into the United States that it is it is definitely a tough one. It is definitely a tough one. We also have so many other factors which can tilt the scale in a student's favor if their parents are veterans or uh, different different things like gender. They can certainly uh, tilt the scale in someone's favor based on gender. So it's really hard to figure out how to address this one. Well, uh, I think what what is 
<clears throat> the feeling is, based on the questions by the justices at the Supreme Court is, that <clears throat> you could well see a decision that says, look, uh, don't even consider race. In other words, on the application, don't put what your race is. You put down, uh, your, you make your application, you went to this high school, you got these grades, these, so this is the grades, you took the ACT test, you took the various tests, here were your scores in the tests. Uh, you can factor in the fact that you want all around students to where you want some athletes or you want people who have participated in various activities that gave them some unique qualification. But it, when, it, when it comes to just giving preference because of someone's background, uh, can you do that? And you raise the question, and I'd like you to address this. How do you define someone that's, that's African-American, for example? If, uh, if, if there is a black mother and a white, uh, uh, a white father, is that child African-American? If so, if the, uh, if the mother has two uh, parents, one black, one white, and she marries, and they, it goes on down the line, I know at one point in the past, I think there was some absurd law that said if you had one-eighth blood of, of African-American in you, right. then that supposedly made you black. <laughs> you know, how crazy can you get on that? But uh, uh, you raised this point. It's, it's, you know, it's not clear-cut. It's clear-cut if you're living on a reservation and you're an Indian and all your blood is Indian. That's pretty clear-cut. Uh it's pretty clear cut, uh, and I say Indian is an Indian from India. Is that is that person Asian? I, I don't know. I did. I, I don't think of someone from India as being Asian. I don't think of look on India right. as being Asian. Uh, when you talk about minorities, you know, coming from the Middle East. I mean, someone who is a Hindu, uh, someone from the Middle East who is uh, Arab. Uh, there's a real minority there, but uh, we've never looked on that uh, preferences in that area. So you just said it right. a little bit ago. It's very complicated, and it's hard to work out a, a, a reasonable solution that's going to satisfy everyone. Well, to the extent that you're right, we, we reject all these absurdities about what percentage of your heritage has to be uh, African-American or black or some minority to for you to be considered that, you know, that, that we reject all that. I always thought it was interesting with Barack Obama, he was just assumed that he was a black president. And I thought, well, he's got a white parent than a black parent. So Cam uh, Camilla Harris, our vice Cam president. Harris, she has a Indian parent and a black parent, I guess. So you're right defining race becomes more and more difficult to do here. Of course, this is a problem I think primarily these highly selective universities are experiencing that a lot of state schools don't necessarily have to wrangle with in the same way. But affirmative action overall with the court, I think, is going to continue to be whittled down with the conservative court to go away. Uh, they use the example, and the, the arguments lasted quite a while and got somewhat testy. They use the arguments that a school might this year need an oboe player in the school band. So an oboe player gets elevated to the top of the list to get in, where next year they might have plenty of obo oboe players and they need change a trumpet player. They need, they need a trumpet player. <laughs> so, so they change those. And, and, so, and the athletic preference, I mean, I, I've 
qualified to get in the University of North Carolina as an out-of-state student. And I, I checked that out to be sure. Not patting myself on the back, but I made the cut. But uh, if, if I had not quite made the cut because I had an athletic scholarship, that was a preference. With, Athletes, right. uh, and we see that at our state schools in Louisiana, LSU, and other schools that get a preference. Uh, Tulane gives preferences, I know, uh, to athletes uh, who don't perhaps quite make the the uh, number, don't make the proper test scores. Pretty close. Uh, their profile is not being able, to, rather being able to to graduate or, or get through school. But so uh, uh, so, like I say. It's it's tough. It's a tough call. And then Harvard's being accused of discriminating against the Asian Americans because, you know, like you said, they do well on test scores percentage wise. And so they've come up with some subjective quiz or uh, survey that will gauge things like their likability or their courage and kindness. And they would measure that to be used. I'm thinking, what? How crazy is this? So they're effectively trying to create a ceiling for how many Asian Americans are getting into Harvard so that they can then over here lift up some underrepresented. And the goal is honorable because, like you said, diversity is good for the school. It's good for you to live in a microcosm in college of students like you will in the outside world after you finish. And the world's made up of all these different races. But how you get into those highly competitive spots and admissions, it's a tough one to sort out. Well, and as far as the country, as far as the democracy, <clears throat> I mean, uh, everybody who seeks to get a college education, I think, ought to get one. But you also don't want to water down your best and your brightest. I had the great privilege of going to Cambridge University in, in England. And Cambridge prides itself on being the college that graduated uh, every king of England for the last seven or eight hundred years. And they say that uh, six or seven out of the top uh, most important discoveries ever made were made at Cambridge. And y'all are keeping the streak alive with Prince Tr King Charles. Well, now. that's right. That's right. <laughs> keeping the streak alive. <laughs> but the point I'm I'm trying to make is <clears throat> that. If Cambridge is, is making discoveries that help society as a whole, help the world in terms of health and everything like that, I didn't think, say, well, but we got to now start taking 20% diversity and kind of having quotas and everything like that. I, I think there ought to be some institutions where you have the very best and brightest that you have that are working on uh, various formulas and, you know, uh, Steve Jobs did this, and, and uh, uh, Facebook does this. I know something about Facebook because my daughter works in this venue. And you put these kids in rooms, and uh, you feed them well, and you pay them well, and they work day and night. They work sometimes 36 hours straight to come up with these magnificent inventions. So you say, well, wait a minute now. We got to kind of calm this down. We got to have more women. We got to have more Indians. And we got to, you know, I mean, is that in our best interest to allow that, that set of rules to be across the board? 
I don't know. I don't know. This is one I think we ought to toss out to our listeners and see what they think about it, because the Supreme Court's going to make a tough decision. And this might be something we have to come back and talk about. Did they do it right or not? Chime in, Chris. You got any feelings on this? You're you're a, a professor uh, and you teach a science. You teach a very specific <laughs> science uh, and you're try- and you're working on some ideas invention wise. Should you water down your research by saying, well, but even though there's some pretty good students you'd like to have, they're just sharp as a tack and really help your project. No, we can't do this, Professor. We've got to have uh, uh, diversity. We've got to bring in uh, got to bring in some folks from New Guinea, and we've got to bring in some from folks from different countries that are applying, and we, just, and we water this whole thing down. What do you think about that? Well, I'm not a professor just yet. <laughs> but I'm working on it. Um, I'm a strong supporter of affirmative action. And I think this issue stems from wealth. Uh, we have communities that are systemically denied wealth. These are commonly our indigenous and our black communities, the communities that American wealth was stolen from and built upon. As I understand, um, the two biggest springboards for acquiring wealth in our nation are property ownership and education. To this day and for generations, these communities have been kept from owning property and accessing this education. I'm engaged to an indigenous woman whose family was going to segregated school even after segregation. Uh, I I don't think we're getting our best and our brightest if we don't let 10% of our nation compete. I think affirmative action was always supposed to be temporary, but it hasn't done its job yet, and we can't just get rid of it if it's already not good enough. And um, there's another issue as well. You asked about when I'm a professor looking for graduate students. Well, currently we have a system in America that has students occurring so much debt that convincing Americans to stick around for grad school, regardless of their background, is hard. Um, especially when they're offered a really nice paycheck. Uh, I have heard statistics that black students, on average, are far more likely to need to pay earnings back into their family unit. So again, there's even additional pressure on these minority students to pass on grad school and make money. Um, But Chris, nobody's arguing that there shouldn't be, in a number of institutions, diversity. But you know, you go back to World War II when they de- when they developed the uh, the atomic bomb. Universities played a role in the development of that atomic bomb oh, yeah. that, that 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 kept our freedoms. I'd like to think that in in some institutions we got the very best and the brightest trying to solve, trying to find a cure to cancer. Uh, we've got uh, a crazy guy in Russia that's talking about waving nuclear weapons right now, uh, defensively and breaking codes and everything. I don't want to say, well, we got these code breakers. We got to let you guys off, even though you're right on breaking some code, because we gotta we gotta have diversity here in in how we run this operation, how we run government. And well, wait a minute. Let's let the best and the brightest solve those problems. Now we can have lots of other colleges that can be open, but but do we? Ha- you know, shouldn't we have the best and the brightest at some location trying to protect us in a variety of ways? Sorry, what I was getting at, and I tend to ramble, is that if these minority students are the best and brightest, but they have pressure to pay into their family unit, they are likely to opt for a paycheck. And it's not just minority and underprivileged students. It's hard to get Americans as a whole who have drive to enter the workforce and start paying off their student loans and help out their families. You're not going to get a lot of sympathy. I'm a, <laughs> I, I, let me tell you why I'm not sympathetic. I, 
had to work my way. I did not get one penny of support from my family because they couldn't afford it. I love my, but they couldn't afford it. I had to pay every single bill to get me through school and law school. And I ran up loans. I had $75,000 of student loans that I owed, which today, how 1966, what, what is 75,000 a day? Three, 400,000. Very few of the grad students you're talking about owed $400,000. And I got out and I worked and I paid every penny of it off. So did our governor, John Bell Edwards. And you know what? I didn't have a $1,000 cell phone, uh, Apple phone, like every single one of these students you talk about have. And so many of these kids don't work in the summer. They're off in Europe on some kind of gallivant. So (laughs) I'm not real sympathetic about that kind of person because the people that made this country great, I served in the military. I paid off my student loans. And I'm not sympathetic to some grad. Somebody says, well, I'm not going to grad student because I owe $15,000. And uh, and, and, uh, that doesn't hit me. That doesn't doesn't resonate with me, (laughs) Chris. And so uh, I see what you're saying to some degree. But I'm just saying there's got to be a place where the best and the brightest can sit there and solve problems facing our economy and not be watered down because we got to have diversity. And, I think the uh, and, problem is the best and brightest might be in that group, but they might not until we solve the problem that every kid starts out at, with the same quality education below there. You know, that's why they're trying to do these affirmative action programs because they haven't had all the benefits that other kids have had sometimes. So, well, at some point we got to get beyond this, and I think we're good. We're going to see some movement by the U.S. Supreme Court in its ruling. It's not going to be probably till next uh, June or July, but I think there's going to be some real limitations uh, put on uh, that approach. And then there is some, you know, private efforts. Uh, Wall Street Journal I read here this week had an article about Hillsdale College. They don't take any federal funds, and they say on their application, it doesn't say what your race is or your your gender or anything like that. It just says, uh, here's my application. Here's, my gra- here's the grades that I've formed. Here's my test results. Tell you a little bit about myself. But uh, uh, they don't, they don't purposely don't look at those factors of race and gender and everything like that. They've quit taking federal funds and people are flocking to go to that college. So uh, there's uh, always going to be something that gives people favors, whether it's that your parents attended the school or whether it's like I mentioned, the veterans or there's always going to be some preferences, whether you're the oboe player, the year they need that, that oboe player. You must know an oboe player. That's the third time you've mentioned that. Was that was the argument in front of the Supreme Court. That was the argument. I think it was Justice Roberts who jumped up and said, we didn't fight the Civil War over oboes. <laughs> no, that was their that was their argument, as ridiculous as it seems. That was it. But I do, I do agree with Jim. This court, being as conservative as it is, is definitely going to dial back affirmative action. I'm just saying there will always be some favor, whether it's the athlete, the player, or the uh, veteran, or or whatever else. There will always be some way universities, I think, can can do favors. I just hope it's not by trying to determine who's 
got more courage and kindness than the next student. Well, if you got a comment you want to make on this, if you're an oboe player, for example, and you got to weigh in, we'd like to hear from you. Uh, our our uh, website is datelinelouisiana.com, and you can find our email address simply Huey at datelinelouisiana.com. So send a note to us and let us know what you think. If you want to be on this show, give us your phone number. We'll call you up and have you on the show, and you can weigh in. Except if you call in and we get 10 callers, we got to have a balance of, of so many women and so many African Americans. We can't just take you right off the bat. So you got to understand if we don't get to your call. Right, Rana? That's it. I'm going to read you this. I just found uh, where they argued that race for some highly qualified applicants can be the determinative factor. Just as being an oboe player in a year when the Harvard Radcliffe Orchestra needs an oboe player will be the tip, at which point Chief Justice, taken aback, said, we did not fight a civil war about oboe players. We did fight a civil war to eliminate racial discrimination. And that's why we're talking about this. Right. So well, we shall see. Not, we will. We will. So uh, listen, thanks for listening, folks. Had a lively show today. We've got a lot more planned in the future. Hope you'll be stay tuned. We put a new uh, a podcast up each Friday, and you've got a, a, a lot more planned for you. So stay tuned for Ronna Gray, for producer Chris. And for me, Jim Brown, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to Dateline Louisiana with Jim Brown and Ronna Gray. To subscribe to this podcast or contact Jim or Ronna, visit DatelineLouisiana.com. We hope you'll join us again next week for more news and reflections from the Bayou State.